0: invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Uh, We start a new series today after finishing our series of big questions last week and we're going to dive in with Jesus. Uh, We're going to dive in with Jesus in a series called Jesus in Depth and we're addressing Jesus in Depth in this series because well there are uh, so many misconceptions about Jesus flying around today and uh, we also have a concurrent search for heroes going on in the process and I want us today to look at Jesus in Scripture for the coming months, even year, and think about how he's way more than a hero as we look at uh, Mark chapter 1. So let me encourage you, if you're new to the faith, Mark chapter ones near the back of the Bible, you'll find it among the Gospels. and Matthew, Mark, Mark comes after Matthew. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Mark speaks to a world where there are all kinds of heroes and no one really doing the ultimate saving, and this is what Mark and his gospel says to us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, "'Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness.'" and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Some of you have heard this story before, but eight years ago or so, a bunch of friends and I took a trip to British Columbia, Canada, uh, where we decided to go on a mountaineering trip. I called our midlife crisis trip because all of us were in midlife, and you might imagine a group of middle aged men putting on things like 60 pound packs for a five day trip up an 8,300 foot mountain, going up and back down in the process. To be sure, it was fun in many ways. We hiked beautiful trails, uh, kind of the the picture, if you will, of uh, the Alps when you see it on The Sound of Music. You saw a lot of that on our trip. We also uh, mountaineered up steep slopes with our snow axes. Uh, We traversed snow-capped ridges, and we even crossed a glacier in the process. It was quite the challenge as a whole trip, I have to tell you, but the one big challenge that kind of surprised us was not on the way up, but actually on the way down. Uh, We were going on the way down through an old logging trail in British Columbia called the Alders. And the Alders was a winding path that took about four hours or so to get through. And it was full of trees that did not grow straight up, but were thin trees that grew sideways, diagonally, every which way, with a path winding all the way through it it could be a real pain to get through as you're going going on this path and you try to duck down underneath a tree and it sticks on your actual backpack or you try to step over one and imagine a bunch of middle-aged guys trying to step over and we're just not as nimble as we used to be and you trip and fall things like that would happen together but then about halfway through maybe three quarters through the trip things got really interesting we were walking along this trail together, and uh, our, uh, uh, one of our guys right in front of me, and then another one right behind me said this. They said, Do you, did you hear that? And I was like, I didn't hear it. And then another guy said, I didn't hear it. But then others said, yeah, I heard it too. And then I asked them, well, what would you hear? And they said, a growl. <laughs> and as we were walking this whole, like, hours on this trail, we saw bear scat all over the trail. And sure enough, not far away from us, you could see just 30 yards away, a cave or two sitting right near us. And we started to get a little nervous. So you can imagine a bunch of middle-aged men at this point who are already kind of trudging through, picking up the pace some. So we picked up the pace. About 45 minutes later, we, we all of a sudden come to a stop with our guides who are taking us all along the way on this, on this trip. And our guides stopped, and uh, they said, uh-oh. And we were like, "Uh, what do you mean, uh uh-oh? Well, we came literally to the end of the trail where all you do is step right up to a ledge and you're in this big forest with huge trees and it went straight down and there was nothing there to walk on. And so they said, well, uh, we kind of, I think, missed a a turn along the way. So they said, look, you guys wait here. (laughs) You know, it's getting dark too. I kid you not. (laughs) You wait here, and we'll go f- back and find wherever the way was. So we sat there. Was getting dark, big forest at the edge of a ledge. Where uh, there's a bear somewhere around here in some way, and we were feeling a little lost, like we were in the wilderness. We'll come back to the end of the story later. But I do believe that this experience is a word picture for many of us in our lives where we feel like sometimes we're in a wilderness and we're standing at the ledge, not sure where we're going to go next. Today, we're going to go through, uh, begin a a, a trek, if you will, with Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And we're going to do so because Jesus begins his whole ministry in, of all places, a wilderness. (laughs) That that's where really walking with Jesus often really takes place. And today in Mark 1, we're going to look at another wilderness where people themselves were in that time of life and wilderness, where they had to come to grips with the truth of who they were and who Christ was right there in the wilderness. So indeed, today we're going to come to the grip, kind of come to the big question together when we're in this wilderness, when we're standing on the edge. Where does hope begin? Where does hope begin whenever we're at the edge on that trail? And then we're going to ask this question, what does Jesus bring to that? What does Jesus bring to that? What depth does Jesus bring to that trail where we find ourselves standing? Well, today we're going to see in in Mark chapter 1 kind of four things stand out about Jesus in depth. And the first would be this, we're going to talk about the gospel in depth. Then we're going to talk about the Baptist in depth. We're going to talk about a big reveal in depth. And we're going to ultimately address Jesus himself in depth. So where does hope begin according to the book of Mark? We'll start with me, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark starts off by telling us the story of Jesus in depth. And I say in depth Because he starts off with this thing called the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, we've got to stop and say, what exactly is the gospel? What is he talking about? We don't use that word a lot in our culture, although we in the church can sometimes use it a lot. But what does it mean? Well, gospel in the first century in the ancient world was good news. It was good news that usually traveled all over the place in the ancient world, through heralds, that is, reporters, ancient reporters, who would go to cities and towns and would tell of great things that were going on in their country, in their city, even in the empire, this time with Roman uh, uh, leaders. Now, you got to remember, at that time, they didn't have 24-hour news, they didn't have social media, or even newspapers to let people know what was going on, so they relied on heralds for the big news that was going on in the town. And a a peculiar thing that heralds would often do is they would usually highlight what was going on with the emperor, that is, the lord of the Roman Empire. They would talk about all his great actions, his exploits. They even highlighted his birthday every year. And the king, you see, was big news in those days. Mark, however, is saying in light of this, there is a different gospel, a greater gospel, that far exceeds any gospel that came in their time and, dare we say, our own time. It is a gospel of a great king and even far greater events than what we've experienced. And Mark wrote this in around the late 50s, maybe early 60s, while he was in Rome. So he was immersed with news and heralds about what was going on with the empire and even with the emperor. And Christianity itself was gaining a momentum at this time was spreading all over the empire and lots of people had assumptions about christianity and even jesus christ himself and so mark wanted to speak as a herald into this moment and tell people who jesus really was he wanted to clear the air regarding popular opinion about jesus and culture and that's the case is it not We all come to Jesus, even as Christians sometimes, with our assumptions about who Jesus is and what he's about. And that, in fact, was part of the problem for the Christians in that time. They were in a challenging position. They were often ridiculed. They were called atheists and party poopers because they wouldn't participate in the pagan uh, worship rituals that would happen throughout the cities. Already, persecution was occurring with their families and even with their businesses, many of them felt like they were in a wilderness with wild bears all around. They needed to know that Jesus was still king. And are we any different? So notice how he starts the gospel in our text with the words, the beginning. This is already good news for us As Christians, he says, in the beginning of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ. What Mark wanted people to know is that this is where it all starts, with Jesus, but that Jesus wasn't done yet. You might find in the book of Luke that same kind of language, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of Acts, this language of how Jesus was just getting started. And Mark 1 through 16, you got to understand, is just the beginning of Jesus' work. He's been working even to this day. Now, at some point, someone may say, okay, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, we're talking about the book of Mark here. We may have an issue in that who wants to believe kind of legends? I mean, these are kind of stories from yesteryear. Isn't this bunch of hyped-up stories kind of like uh, the Marvel heroes of the first century? Well, there are a couple problems with that assumption about the Bible and about the stories of Jesus. First, We know from the rest of the New Testament that Mark himself walked with the apostles and particularly we know he walked with Peter, the apostle Peter who had a direct access and saw everything that Jesus did. You might imagine Mark was walking around with Peter and he heard Peter preach and teach in multiple settings and he eventually wrote down what he had heard. Second, there's another issue around the the legitimacy and the reliability or even veracity of the scriptures. And this is that the story of the paralytic being lowered through a roof uh, in chapter 2 and meets Jesus so he can get healed just seems too real to be something you would make up out of the blue. Even more, people are named throughout the gospel for uh, 25 or so years after Jesus' life, Simon Peter, Bartimaeus, Simon of Cyrene are listed as names. It's, if, it's as if Mark is daring anyone reading at the time to check his facts. Just go ask these guys. Go ask Simon of Cyrene. Go ask Bartimaeus if they had seen Jesus. You see, the gospel is written as a historic account of Jesus. Mark means to write, r- write this as something reliable. Reliable for us to bank our lives on. So what's this got to do with us? Well, Mark is telling us that in all this good news, we find truth. Truth. Uh, We can have, while we have all kinds of assumptions about who Jesus is, this is truth about who Jesus actually was and is. Mark, in fact, gives us an in-depth account of Jesus, calling him the Christ, which was... A first century term to describe a royal king figure, a man who would come and deliver people. And he even uses the language of Jesus as a son of God to describe him as, a, as this great divine figure who would come into the world. And already in the very first verses of our chapter, uh, we see that uh, it's teaching that Jesus is both God and man. But don't miss this. There is an article about this God man in our text in front of the word gospel. You see the article, those of you English majors, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying Mark is saying something big here that there is only really one gospel. There's one true gospel for all mankind. It's not another newsfeed or a factoid in Wikipedia. And how might we break down this gospel versus other gospels in our world? Well, I would suggest to you there really in the end are only two gospels. One gospel says this, that we fix things in life. We do what we need to do to set our lives and our world straight, with or without a God. The other gospel, which is what we've got here in Mark, says that what we can't do God sends his son to do for us. The one savior sets our lives straight and sets the world straight with eternal life and salvation. I got to ask everyone here today, and I've been asking this myself even the last few days, what is your functional gospel? What's your good news? What brings you life and animates you? What is it that you think you can do to fix life. That would tell you something about your functional gospel. Mark is saying you need to look to one in Christ who is the actual gospel, the true Son of God, the divine Lord who is the only one who can get things straight in our wilderness. Now the interesting thing about this gospel in Mark is it gets started in an interesting way not only talking about the gospel. But it doesn't immediately start with Jesus. Did you notice that? It starts with the Old Testament quotes and then a guy named John the Baptist. Look at verse 4 with me. It says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Who in the world was John the Baptist? Well, John, we believe, was the last Old Testament prophet. He dressed the part of a prophet. What it says here later, how he wore animal clothing and leather belt and things like that, all pointed back to what often uh, Old Testament prophets would wear. In short, he was a goodwill clothes guy, getting stuff from the 1970s. He was not a South Park guy. Now, we see John the Baptist uh, you have to understand is at the end of a long line of, of storied prophets who had predicted Christ would come. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament were quoted throughout verses 2 and 3, and that goes all the way back to Moses and then to Elijah and Isaiah and even Malachi are quoted in there. And they all talked about Jesus coming, but they also talked about another one coming, about John. John, you see, would be the crescendo of all the voices of Old Testament prophets saying, one is coming, the one we've always longed for is coming to rescue us. In other words, John was the crescendo of the, of the introduction of Jesus to the world. Now, John had one job. He had one job to prepare the way of the Lord. That was his job. And he did that in two ways. First, he baptized people. With a baptism of repentance. John saw his culture as corrupt. He saw that the Roman worldly leadership was broken. He saw that religious leadership was broken in their time. And the people were lost in the wilderness of worldliness and of religiosity. So he called people out to him in the wilderness, away from the cities and towns, and he called them to repent. And be baptized. Now, here comes the, the the different angle on baptism that John brings. What is John's baptism? Well, this is important. If you want to, for your Bible scholars, you gotta remember John was the son of a priest. He got baptism from the priests of the Old Testament who would baptize other priests and even different parts of the temple because baptism was about washing. Washing, cleansing. Away sin. John was saying to the people at that time, you need to be washed of your sin. You need forgiveness. You think you need the world. You think you need the next big thing. What you really need is to be washed clean in your souls with forgiveness. John not only baptized and called them to being washed, but he also prepared the people by preparing, preaching rather, one of the most shocking things imaginable in our self-aggrandizing celebrity age. He turned the focus away from himself. Look at verse 7 with me and what he says there in verse 7. It says this, He preached, that is John the Baptist, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a summary of John's main message. Someone far more important than him, even as an Old Testament prophet, was coming. And it was the Lord. The Lord himself was coming. And John is clearly not about himself in this gospel that's going out. And he says the worst public relations imaginable thing you could do he does it in another gospel, in the Gospel of John. I mean, this is a great way to kind of ruin your momentum in public life. He says, "I am not the Christ." He says, "He must increase. I must decrease." In other words, John's saying, "I'm not the hero of the story. This one who coming, who is coming is. You know, John even gives this perspective in his own baptism. He says, look, my baptism is merely symbolic, pointing to washing. This guy who's coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's going to work inside of you, personally showing up to do it. In your heart. Now, there are two things we can take to heart here from John the Baptist. And the first is this. Jesus is the only one who can wash away what we feel is messy and dark inside. Oh, we try, especially us South Charlotte people. Oh, man, we'll come up with all kinds of ways to make ourselves look good rather than actually be good. So sin comes from the inside out, not outside in, and Jesus is the only one who can take care of that. No man in the world can do the work on our hearts like Christ can, not even ourselves. Second is this. And this is true, especially for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Our life is one continuous lesson of John's statement in the other gospel: It's, I am not the Christ. There is one mightier than I. We are tempted in our time to believe we are the Christ with our kids. We are tempted to believe we are the Christ in our careers when we can use our power to fix things, even in government. Even we're tempted to believe we can make things happen in great religious achievements. But remember this, maturity in Christ and in Jesus is where Jesus is lifted up as the hero of every story in our lives, not us. You know, pastors like me are prone to hero business. Being in the church planning world, it's oh so common for pastors to get together with each other, even planters, especially planters, and say, so how's your church going? Of course, that's code language. That's code language for how are you measuring up with the ABCs of church? You know what the ABCs of American church are, don't you? Attendance, buildings, and cash. But here's the interesting thing. We haven't been asking that of each other very much the last few years with COVID. (laughs) COVID has been a challenge, has really challenged everything about how we do church and even pastoring. It's really been our pastoral wilderness in large measure where measurables have to be thrown out the door. I never thought I'd be just happy as kind of a let's take the hill guy just to have us here on Sunday, period. You know, that we're just together. Amen, you know. COVID has reminded us all, even and especially pastors, I'm not the Christ. There is one that's mightier than I am. So, for some time, John the Baptist baptizes and preaches in the wilderness. He talks about the coming Christ, and then it happens. Enter Jesus. Look with me at verse 9 of our text. Jesus, uh, It shows up here. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is the moment that all of history, all those Old Testament prophets, John had been announcing for, for some time, This was it. Jesus shows up on the scene, and and Mark uses this to introduce us to Jesus. After 30 years of relative obscurity, Jesus leaves Galilee, shows up, and is baptized by John with a baptism of repentance. Wait, what? Jesus was baptized with a baptism of repentance? I thought Christianity said that Jesus was sinless. What would he need to repent of? Wait a minute now. This doesn't make sense. Even John, in the book of John, oh, John the Baptist, that is, in the, in the Gospel of John, protests and says Jesus shouldn't be baptized. He shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. Jesus should be baptizing him. What's going on here? Why is Jesus being baptized? Well, here's what's happening. Remember, John the Baptist was a son of Zechariah, a Levitical priest. Priests were ordained at the age of 30 years old. And how were they ordained? With water baptism, with oil representing the Holy Spirit, and with blood. Here's what's happening. Jesus is being ordained into the ministry as the priest of all priests, It's like the President of the United States being sworn into office for a big job. Jesus has this huge job that the Father has given him. It's so big even that the Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove to fill him with the power to serve. Christ, in other words, is being revealed as the priest who would give his own life for us. So what's that? got to do with us? What's the connection with where we are? Well, Christ is being ordained as a priest in what we call the order of Melchizedek, a unique priesthood. And in the process, he's making a statement of solidarity with sinners like you and me who need our sins washed away. Think of it this way. Whatever you think of public demonstrations They are a way in our culture and in America for one group to say, we're in solidarity with you, a person or another group. In this case, Jesus is demonstrating and saying he's in it with us and for us. Now, here's the crazy thing about the gospel in this. Mark is telling us that Christ is in solidarity with sinners, us, though he is holy and though he is against sin. Well, here's another way to say it. He is for us to be against our sin. He's for the world against the world. When men like us wilt in the wilderness with our sin, he comes into that moment with us and says, I am with you. I am for you. There's more that's unexpected here. His empowerment by the Spirit, when the Spirit comes on him, was to help, was to show how he is a servant, a servant to broken people in a broken world. Jesus is not only a big God and Savior, he's a big servant, which is not what you'd expect of the Son of God. Now, have you ever had that happen for you? where someone stuck up for you in some way, someone came to your side unexpectedly and say, I'm for you, I'm with you. Remember that trip I told you about we took out to British Columbia? So about, we're carrying 60-pound packs. I'm a middle-aged man, I am not not in great shape, and we're going up an 8,300-foot mountain. i got to tell you, the first leg of that trip, I didn't think I'd make it it was hard. I didn't know how to kind of walk up these steep slopes. I had to learn how to do that later. But along the way, everybody noticed I was struggling. I was the weak one, the weak link. And so what happened was all the guys got came around me. And they said, "Hey Dean, we can help you. We'll take some of that 60 pounds. We'll take 30 of it or something like that." And so they all took stuff out of my pack, put it in their packs and added their weight to it added it to their weight. And there it is. It made a huge difference for me the rest of the way, among other things I learned. But that's what Jesus does for us as well. Jesus in depth is the one who's the great priest who came to serve us and take the load of our sin off our backs. Well, Jesus clearly comes for this reason. He's baptized But the tests weren't done for Jesus. Look at verse 12 with me. Things keep moving along quickly as we'll find throughout the book of Mark where it talks about immediately, immediately, immediately. There's always movement with God and movement with Jesus in this text. And it says this in verse 12, "...the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan." Our text not only says he went to, into the wilderness, that is Jesus, to see, to see John, he actually went further in the wilderness for another 40 days. And the Spirit drove him there. What's that about? Well, first got to understand he's following the Spirit's lead. He was walking by the Spirit just like God's people did when they followed the Shekinah glory cloud around in Moses' time with the Exodus. Clearly, God the Spirit will lead us into challenging places with Christ. Have you ever thought of that? That all the hard things you're going through, we've encountered even together, Jesus was leading in that, albeit a satanic influence in some cases. You see, wilderness where Jesus leads us is a place of testing and truth in the Scriptures. It's the place where God's people are revealed and God himself is revealed. It's a place where renewal and new creation with God happen in the Holy Spirit. And think about the people of God with Moses in the wilderness. They were tested, they were revealed. It was not a pretty picture. Still, God rescued them. From themselves, and he started something new. Let's pay attention to this. Sometimes God leads Himself—that is, leads us into the wilderness, a hard place where we are revealed, where we are tested, where our unbelief bubbles up and is is visible in some ways. And it's where we sometimes face spiritual warfare, where it can feel overwhelming. And here's the gospel. The Spirit leads us there with Christ, along with Him, and it's an opportunity to call on the Lord in a new way. You know, all of us are sick and tired of COVID. I sure am. But here's the thing. COVID's an opportunity for us to grow. Jesus was tested and revealed in our text, but His test... Was probably way more intense than ours. He was tested directly by Satan. But he brought something new to the table, unlike anyone who had ever been tempted in history before. This picture of Satan with Jesus in the wilderness is a clear reference to another moment with Satan in Scripture. It's a reference to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve came face-to-face with Satan in the Garden of Eden. And in that case, Adam succumbed to the temptations of Satan along with his wife Eve. Adam was the man who didn't get it right. He's the one who shirked responsibility, went silent, wouldn't do anything. But in our text, Jesus steps it up. Jesus gets it right. He's the one who wins the first showdown with Satan. And this would be the first of many showdowns to come in the book of Mark. How in the world did Jesus for 40 days endure Satan's onslaught? Well, Jesus wasn't alone. At Christ's baptism, did you notice who was there with John the Baptist? It was the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there, right there at his baptism. And the Father expresses his eternal pleasure with his Son. And while Jesus was in the wilderness, angels attended him. And guys, you got to know, you are not alone. Fundamentally, you're not alone with Christ being present in the Spirit with you and me in our lives, filling us as well as in our midst together as a people But it's really important to know that we are not alone in this process of being in the wilderness together. The gospel point is clear. Jesus is not only the sole focus of the gospel. As the king and priest who came to serve, he's the one who gets it right when we don't. He makes things new and right even in the wilderness. What's this got to do with us? Well, Christ can make you and me new. If you're a follower of to Christ today, I invite you to come along this trek with Mark's gospel and to ask the hard question, who is Jesus really? What does he say about himself? What do the gospels say about him? What do the historic accounts say about him? Not what everybody in culture says or even what I assume. If you're a follower of Christ today, there really is great hope here. Jesus made his debut in the wilderness. Not the height of great things for a people. He came in a hard, dark moment in culture in that time, and he dives into our world now to bring a new creation, a new exodus. He can bring new life to us because he's with us now. Last I left us, My friends and I were stuck in the altars at the edge of a cliff. It was getting dark. Bears were close by, and we weren't sure where our guides were. In the background, though, we could start to hear our guides yelling at each other. No, they weren't being attacked by bears. They were yelling directives, I've got it. No, I've got it. Oh, here it is right here. And voila, they found the location and then quickly came back and found us. And they took us out on the trail and we missed this subtle turn in the trail that took you home and went right by it. Well, today there's a subtle turn in the trail here for all of us. It's Jesus, the way. I encourage you to look at Jesus in depth for one real reason. He wants to take us home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now, and all of us come with assumptions about you. We've learned a few little things about you today, but we pray those would become big things in our hearts. For all of us need to know that you're here with us. You debuted in the wilderness. You're familiar with the wilderness, you're not afraid of it. You conquered it. We pray you'd walk into our versions of the wilderness, be it in our homes, with our kids with our careers, with whatever in life seems too big for us, we ask you, Jesus, to meet us in that moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.